Parshas Vayetze is the story of Yaakov's trip to Haran, his sojourn with Lavan, and then his return, then his return to Eretz Canaan. So when Yaakov finally decides to make his break with Lavan to leave, so he discusses the matter with his wives, Lavan's daughters, and he proposes that they leave. They wholeheartedly agree. Rachel and Leah tell him, Do we still have any portion <coughs> in our father's home? Are we not considered by him as strangers, for he has sold us? So we, we don't have any filial feeling to, you know, to, our, to our father. We're, we're ready to leave. Rashi comments that when they say that we are aliens to him, we're strangers to him, Rashi says, even at a time when people normally give nedunya, normally give dowries to their daughters when they marry them off, he behave toward us as strangers. He sold us to you in return for your labor. Yaakov had to work seven years for each of the two women. The truth is, many ancient cultures, in addition to dowries, did have the notion of bride price, the idea that one paid symbolically or even meaningfully for, still do it today apparently, according to Wikipedia, some cultures still have bride price where they not actually so unusual to pay the father of the bride something for the woman, <coughs> but at least in the Jewish tradition, in the Rashi, at least in the tradition Rashi's bringing, it was the other way around. It was typically a father who settled a dowry on his daughter at the time of the marriage, rather than the reverse. In the Shilto Stravachai Gon, an important Gonic halachic work, so it's a series of essays, several per parsha, halachic essays in Aramaic that are related to the related to the parsha. Usually the connection is pretty explicit, pretty strong. He quotes a verse from the parsha, a mitzvah, some some pasuk, some commandment, and then discusses a halachic, a talmudic uh, talmudic issue that related to that pasuk. One of the one of the several shelters or parshas vayetze does not have any explicit or direct connection to the parsha. He just begins, he jumps in, and he says, someone who has a daughter and marries her off is supposed to give her a dowry, is supposed to give her some money from his, from his property to, to help to marry her off. Not exactly clear what that has to do with parsha's ve'etze, but the, the commentaries say, apparently it's, a, it, it's an echo of the same Rashi that the Shiltas is saying that Rachel and Leah were saying our father treated us in such an unfatherly way instead of settling a dowry upon us, he did just the opposite, he charged you, he charged you for the privilege of marrying us, that is not normal behavior, that, that's abnormal, what would be normal would be the other way around for him to, for him to have given us a dowry, and that's the Shiltus' jumping off point to the, the laws of dowries. So we're going to discuss a little bit the, the background of dowries in the Talmud, not so relevant today, we don't do it, uh, you know, culturally we don't do it, it's not, it's not recommended in general, not, Halakha doesn't particularly recommend it necessarily, but we'll see there is one major ramification of the Talmudic discussion of dowries, which is quite relevant today, and that is the idea that some of the same arguments and motivations for granting dowries are also motivations for including one's daughters in one's will, as opposed to the classic rules of inheritance, which do not give the daughters property, they give all the property to the sons, some of the same reasons the Talmud gives for providing a dowry are also the reasons that, we, that, that motivate us today to include daughters in wills, and that, of course, is a matter of great practical import. So we'll discuss first the, 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 the Talmud and the medieval background to dowries, and then we'll, and then we'll discuss how that, how that devolves into the modern uh, situation of wills. 
So the Talmud in Ksuvos has a passage discussing dowries. It begins by discussing an, an institution called Ksuvas Benin Dechrin, the Ksuva of the male children. This is a somewhat technical mechanism instituted in Talmudic times. The way the Ksuva works, the way the traditional marriage settlement works, again, the husband doesn't provide a full-blown dowry necessarily, but the husband does provide what in English is confusingly called apparently a dower, which is a property settled on a woman in the event of her widowhood. So Ksuva was essentially money that he promises to give her in the event that she becomes a widow or he divorces her. It's not a huge amount of money. It's by some accounts, it was enough to live on for a year. If, if you calculate based on silver, it's several thousand dollars, depending on the price of silver, several thousand or several tens of thousands of dollars. If you calculate based on a cost of living formula, it can be several tens of thousands of dollars. Also, it's not a huge amount of money, especially if the man is well off. But the basic suva is money that, that, that she receives upon his death or his decision to divorce her. The ksuva itself? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. The, 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 the ksuva is more akin to a bride price or to a, except right, a typical bride price was payable up front. The, the ksuva, in English, apparently there's a word called dower, I learned, which is a bride price that's paid upon death. Or, so, right, it, it is more equivalent to a bride price. But the point is that, that it was typically a smaller amount of money payable only on death. We do have the notion of ksuva, which was meant as, not so much as payment for her, but was meant more as uh, provide her with a kind of safety net or a basis to live on if he, uh, if, if he left her single again. Yes, and that is more similar to, the, to, the, to, to, a, to a bride price. And the Talmud has an institution called the... The Talmud talks about something called the Ksuvas Benin Dechrin. The Ksuvas Benin Dechrin applies both to the Ksuva we just discussed as well as to any dowry that was provided by the father to her. And it was a provision that her male descendants would inherit it if she predeceased the husband. Normally... And if she predeceases the husband, he inherits all her property. And again, if she's his only wife and all his children come from her, then either way it passes to their children. But if he had another wife, if he has other children, then they would get some of the estate and it would pass away partially from her family. She wouldn't like that. Her father wouldn't like that. They instituted Ksuvas Benin Dechrin in order to encourage... The Ksuva was fixed. The Ksuva that he paid to her was fixed. But the Ksuva that... But the dowry that her father would settle on them, that was optional and that varied by the... That varied by circumstances. You wanted to encourage him to settle more money on her, to give her a larger dowry. In order to do that, they gave him the, the security, the comfort that it would be his grandchildren exclusively who would be inheriting it. And therefore, that was meant to encourage him to give her a dowry. So the Talmud says, wait a second, why are we encouraging the provision of dowry in the first place? Providing a dowry seems to violate a providing dowries and taking the money away from the ordinary heirs, which would be the husband's, which would be the, the, the father's heirs, the, the, the husband's heirs, violates a rule called Avurech Santa. Avurech Santa is a rule that appears in the Talmud that you aren't supposed to write wills that disinherit heirs that the Torah, that the Torah assigns. If the Torah says that a certain relative should inherit, you are not supposed to, even if you can do it in a way that's halakhali valid, legally valid, halakhali valid, you aren't supposed to do it. So who... So if Halacha says that his children inherit the ksuva and the dowry, and Chazal take it away and give it to her children exclusively, then isn't that a violation of the, the, the prohibition against uh, rearranging Yerusha against the will of the Torah? You're not supposed to do that. The Talmud says yes, but here there's a mitzvah to encourage the provision of dowries. That itself is a mitzvah, and that value, the value of providing a dowry, the value of encouraging the provision of dowries, outweighs the, the normal concern 
for Avurech Santa for not tampering with the Torah's rules of Yerusha. The Talmud brings a biblical proof text for this idea that, paying, that giving a dowry is a mitzvah. And the Talmud therefore says that the Ksuvas Brindachrin, which again is a fairly arcane uh, rule, which may have passed in the medieval period already, it was debated whether it was still in force. But the point is that this was a historical note. The Talmud said that there is a mitzvah to provide a dowry based on Psukim and Yirmiya, a mitzvah to provide a dowry, and that mitzvah can outweigh, can override the normal concern of letting the Yerusha fall the way the Torah, the way the Torah establishes it. And in a little more of a practical vein, the Talmud goes on. The Talmud talks about a certain case where a certain father was going was 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 going to assign was going to uh, was going to provide a dowry for his daughter. The Talmud discusses whether that was right or wrong. The Talmud says maybe you're worried about Avuriach Santa that by providing a dowry, the father would be taking property away from his proper male heirs and giving them to his daughter and son-in-law, who are not heirs according to Torah law. Talmud says, no, but it's a mitzvah to give a dowry, and that mitzvah, overrides the, that mitzvah overrides the normal concern with not tampering with the laws of inheritance. And therefore, all these rules, all these rules about dowries and who inherits it and the provision of the dowry itself, even though they violate the Torah's rules of how an estate should be handed down from father to sons and so on, nevertheless, it's okay because the, the paramount mitzvah providing a dowry is, is a value that outweighs preserving the laws of Yerusha in this particular case. So Talmud is telling us two basic principles. On the one hand, there is a rule of Avurech Santa, an admonition not to, not to, not to uh, arbitrarily tamper with the laws of Yerusha, even if you do it in a way that's valid, with a halachic will and everything, you do whatever you want. Still, you aren't supposed to do that in general. However, one major exception is to provide the daughter with dowries, and that's a mitzvah because the, the, the Talmud brings a Pasuk in Yirmiyah, it says that a man is supposed to marry off his daughter. How can he do that? How is it in his power to find her a shidduch? Talmud says, money talks. You want, you want to marry your daughter, the one thing you can do is make sure you provide her with a, uh, with a large sum of money. That will make her more attractive and more marriageable. Yes? Uh, the tuba is only actualized upon an event, right? either death or divorce. But the dowry is actualized immediately upon marriage. Yes. But, but the Talmud's point is that if a father is contemplating giving a dowry to his daughter, he thinks to himself, where is this money going to end up 10 years, 50 years down the line, if he knows that it will revert exclusively to his, to his grandchildren, or the only sons of the couple that came from his daughter, so the money will stay in his family, he's happier to give the money now. He could, if he, he can keep it, but he, but he wants to give a dowry for his daughter. He, he, he likes his daughter. He, he doesn't want to give the dowry. The one, one thing that might, that might give him pause is the idea that it might pass out of the family and into children of the, of the son-in-law that are not his own children, other, other children of, the, of, the, of, the, of his son-in-law who won't be his children. That might... Well, so he doesn't have to do it. Chazal, the Chazal instituted it themselves. They made a rule that gave him security that they guaranteed him that any money he settles on her as a dowry will stay within, within the family. They'll, they'll stay within his children. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss, that's an important point, we'll discuss that a little bit later. We'll, we'll discuss some of the many qualifications, limitations of the rule, and that's going to be one of them, we'll see, yes. Doesn't the standard text of the Ketubah, even the one we use nowadays, talk about the Nidunya as being one of the various assets that are part of the settlement? Yeah, so... In addition to the standard Ketubah... Yes. So it's true that the Ksuva today contains a lot of boilerplate language that refers to traditions that were 
practiced at some point in our history, the, we've kind of accumulated all the language and we haven't really reduced it back to what we do today. It is, it is true that the Ksuva does refer to Nadunya, although it isn't really, in most, certainly most American circles, Hasidim might have different customs, but certainly in American circles it isn't common that we give any actual Nadunya. We give Ksuva, we give Tosefes Ksuva, we give a fixed amount of an addition, but yeah, it, it, does, it does still refer to that Nadunya, though, yes, that's correct. Yes, yes. I don't think it includes profit. I, I think it would include the, the initial capital. The, the rules are complicated, and, I, I don't, and most, of these, most of these monies are treated kind of as loans, and that the, the principal, I think, reverts afterward. I, I don't remember all the rules. They're kind of complicated, but that is an important point, but I, I don't want to go too far down that road because I don't remember all the rules in detail. So what happens if there's no money? If there's no money, there's nothing to inherit. I mean, it, it, it's, it, 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 it's not a promise to pay out of pocket back, back to him. It, it's a promise that if there is money, then they receive their share, I think, of that, of that there, there are certain types of money that is actually that it does actually become a debt and is actually payable back. Um, the the nadunya in this case is there is, there is something called nechsetzon barzel, which in certain cases becomes a debt. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to stay away from that at the moment. I, I, I don't remember all those halachas on the tips of my fingers, and I'm afraid of saying something wrong. So I, I want to just stay away from that for the moment. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just curious. Though, is there any limitation to what the husband can do with that money? So the, the laws of Ksuvas are, are full of rules about, uh, he generally has a lot of control. The, the, the halacha divides assets into different categories. There's Nixay Malug, where there's no special settlement, settlement provision, where he has some limited use of, he gets the profits, but he can't, uh, he can't be too intrusive with it. Uh, he, he can't do too much with it. But there, the Nixay Tzambarazel, the Dunya, he has more control. We, in certain cases, I think she can prevent him from wasting it or dissipating it. But in general, that, it's treated more like a loan, and he has more control over using and investing as he sees fit, generally. So, so, so these are the rules of the Talmud, that, that, the, that the father was encouraged, the father of the daughter was, inher- was encouraged to inherit the mitzvah, to, to, to give her money to help her get married. That money would be the, the couple's, the husband's use during the marriage. At the termination of the marriage, his, uh, his heirs, and their, their joint children would inherit it, as opposed to his other children, because that was at the kind of chazal to encourage, to encourage the... To, to encourage the provision of dowries. Now, by the late medieval period in Ashkenaz, specifically in Ashkenaz, far things did not, did not have this custom, but by the late medieval period in Ashkenaz, they still did dowries and marriage settlements, but there was an additional instrument that used to be signed, and that is what we refer to today, what was referred to sometimes then already, as a shtar chatzizacher. This is kind of a hybrid between a dowry settlement and a modern will. This was a document given to the husband, given to the couple, Instead of, or in addition to, the regular dowry payable in cash or property up front, this was a document that basically guaranteed the son-in-law, the daughter of the son-in-law, a share in her father's estate in, in the event of his death. Some, somebody married a rich man, so whatever property he would settle up front would be you know, some of his assets, but the bulk of his estate he would keep for himself. The son-in-law wanted some, some share, wanted, wanted, again, according to Allah, the daughter gets nothing upon her father's death, 
married daughter would get nothing. So son-in-law and the daughter, they wanted something from their father's, from her father's estate. So they would write a document as part of the marriage settlement called the Shtar Chatzizachar, which was a way of granting, of guaranteeing to the couple, to the, to the son-in-law, a, a share in the estate upon the death of his father-in-law. This would be structured in a somewhat complicated way. It would involve a, a chov, a debt, that was then canceled if they would agree to give certain amounts of money later. We're, we're, we're not going to get into the details and the mechanism for the moment. If it becomes relevant later, we'll get into it later. But basically, they, they wrote a sort of will, a sort of will-type, testament-type document when they began the marriage that would, that would guarantee to the son-in-law a share of the father's estate. It was called chati zachar. Literally, that means half the size of a male child. It was called that because typically they would not give the daughter and son-in-law a share of the estate equal to the actual sons. They would typically award them a portion of the estate, which was half, again, as much as the male heirs would get. If there were six sons and three daughters, so the six, so they would divide the estate into they would they would divide the estate into uh, twelve, you know, fifteen parts, and the 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 sons would get you know, two units each, and then the girls would get one unit each. The, the girls would be getting half as much each as each of the sons got. That's why it was called chatzizachar. The literature does not generally discuss why they chose to give chatzizachar as opposed to zachar shalom, opposed to equal to the sons. We'll return to this later. But uh, historically, that was, the more, that was the dominant practice that they used to write these documents that would give the, the daughters and the son-in-laws a share of the estate equal to half as much as the sons, as the male heirs would get. Why do they do this? So the early sources that we have from the 15th century indicate that both the motivation and the rationalization for it, why it doesn't violate the Torah's rules of Avur Santa. Were, this was an extension of the Talmudic rule. Just like in Talmudic times, the Talmud says it is a mitzvah to provide dowries to, to, make girl, to increase the eligibility of young women to, to help them get married. So, providing, so beyond giving them actual cash, actual property, giving them a document that would guarantee the, the couple a share of the estate, that was also something that would make them more marriageable. And that's also an extension of the same Talmudic rule. Give your daughter some of your money, forget the rules of Yerusha, suspend the rules of Yerusha, in order to make your daughters more marriageable. The Mara Mintz, or Moshe Mintz, a leading German postic of the 15th century, he says we do this, and it doesn't violate the Santa for the same reason the Gemara says dowries don't. And that's why we do it, he says, we give what he calls Shtari Yerushas, we give these, these documents that guaranteed a portion of the estate to the, to the son-in-law, to the daughter, and for the same reason the Gemara said, because uh, to make the daughters more marriageable. The Nachal Shiva, another leading Ashkenazic Akron, a little bit later, he gives a slightly different twist. He says that the, the, the reason this money was given to the, the reason this, this kind of will, this proto-will was, was done, the reason the, the father gave his daughter and son-in-law a share of his estate was to enhance the shalom bias of the young couple, to make her more beloved, to make her more beloved by her husband. It's, uh, even though you can argue that rationally it's not, you know, how the father treats him shouldn't affect the affection and esteem he has for his wife, in the real world it does, and that if, if, if he thinks that her father is, being, is, not, is, not, is not giving him what he deserves, he will take it out in some sense on his wife, he will resent it, and if he thinks her father is being very generous to him, this will enhance the, the relationship. It might not be uh, so romantic, but that's the way the world works sometimes, I guess. So, Nachal Shiva says, again, it's the same idea as the Gemara, that, that the, the idea of either helping the girls get married, enhancing the shalom bias of the women once they're married, Either of those reasons, that, that's a valid reason for suspending the, the, consider, the concern for Avuri Santa, and therefore they did that to, uh, 
They did that despite the Torah's general concerns against against Vurek uh, Santa. This, this was a situation in which they did do it. And this has been the custom in Ashkenaz for hundreds of years that daughters would receive, sons, son-in-laws, daughters would receive a, would receive a Shtar Yerusha, a Shtar Chatzizachar, when they got married. Now, some poskim, again, so the early custom was to do this when they got married. Today, it's not commonly done, certainly not in American circles, when they get married. Today, we do this, if we do it at all, we do this as part of a will, as part of when a person prepares his, his, uh, his will, he, he'll, he'll, write, he'll, he'll write language either in the secular will or in the halachic codicil we have to the will. Either a person will make arrangements to provide for his daughters a portion of his estate post-marriage. So the question is, is this a valid extension of the of the old minag, of the Talmudic custom of giving the daughters a dowry, or of the late medieval custom of giving the daughters a shtari rusha when they got married. Some Akharim actually argue no, the Chatham Sofer, the Marsham, they say, they take the earlier language of Maramint, the earlier language of the Talmud as being, as being dispositive. They say the, the Ikar Heter is to help the woman get married. Once she's married already, it's done, so there's, there's no need for any further... Uh, helping her get married, so there's no hector at this point to suspend the Torah's laws of Yerusha and, 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 and write her into the will. Other Akronim say no, that the, the same sort of heterim apply, even the way we do it today, even if this is done after the marriage, heterim still apply. First of all, we just mentioned the language of the Nachla Shiva, who says that beyond helping her get married, there's a mitzvah to enhance and preserve their shalom bias, and that can apply even if the document is done later when he writes a will, not at the time of the marriage. If the son-in-law finds out that he's not being included in the will, he may resent it, and, and it, so, the, so that reason still applies. Minchas Yitzchak, Dayan Weiss, and Yerushalayim in the last century felt this could apply even to gifts that were made post-marriage. Moreover, other Akronim have said even more creative things. They've given other reasons why the same, the same hatcher applies, even in the modern way we do this, even if we don't do it as part of a marriage settlement, we do it later. Still, in a, in a broad sense, the same logic still applies. Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, who, as we'll see soon, was one of the, is one of the primary uh, advocates of, of doing something like this, of including girls in the will, daughters in the will, he says that it's true that when the son marries her, he doesn't have a document that says, you will get a share of this date. But he anticipates it. He anticipates that when, that when his father-in-law writes his will, he will be included in it. So we're allowed to include him in the will because the son was banking on that, that the, the son-in-law was banking on that when he got married, even if he didn't have a formal guarantee of that. So the same argument, he says, really still applies. So this is what many posts can say, that the, even though the Talmud was talking about an actual dowry and the late medieval authorities were, were talking about uh, testamentary, testamentary documents that were written at the time of the marriage, but they say that they can be extended to documents that are written later. And various postcom have argued that this is the that our minhug to our minhug to include women in the women in the will is 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 still a recognizable extension of both the, the Talmudic custom and then the later medieval extension of it to do it to do it in the form of wills rather than in the form of actual dowries, actual property transfers at the time of the marriage, or even later. Yes? And the minhag today goes beyond just the women, because if you had nine sons, and the oldest one was supposed to have twice the amount, now we, have, we can divide it evenly. Yeah, that's an important question. So Susan is raising the question of the fact that we use the will to do other things besides include women. We, use, we, may, we might use it to take away the, the double portion of the Bukhara. Bukhara is supposed to get Pishnayim. And um, a full disclosure, I am a male child, an oldest male child, and one with sisters, and therefore I have a strong financial interest in the, <laughs> in the topic we are discussing. But 
Yes, but Susan is correct that we, we do this for, for other purposes, including taking away the Pishnayim with the Bukhar. We might include other heirs, even, other heirs who are not even sons or daughters. We might give cousins or other people. Yes, so it's, we, we do take this far, farther than simple daughters. And, and, and with that, I want to turn a little bit to the point Hadas raised earlier, the question of what, what exactly are the parameters of this prohibition against Avuriach Santa. So, many poskim impose a number of major limitations, qualifications of the principle. Some say that it only applies to, to wills, to bequests that are made posthumously. It does not apply to any transfer that is made while someone is still alive. Now, the obvious problem with that is that the Gemara that began this whole discussion was talking about dowries and classic dowries, which were actual cash or asset transfers, not wills. And the Gemara still invoked the question of Avuriach Santa. So the Gemara certainly indicates that it is not limited to wills. It applies even to gifts. On the other hand, it, it, it's, clearly, it's clearly absurd to suggest that nobody's allowed to make a gift of any property throughout his life. You can give birthday presents. You can give your wife an anniversary present. Nobody says that there is any... It's obviously uh, untenable to claim that no gift at all is acceptable. So if we assume that the prohibition in general can apply even to gifts that, that are given mechaim, that are given intervivos gifts, the lawyers tell me they're called, then, then the question is, what, what, what other limits might there be on the, on the prohibition? Some say that the prohibition only applies if you disinherit an heir entirely. You completely write him out of your will. But if you give him some of the estate, even if you transfer some of the property, that's okay. And again, if you accept that, that also legitimizes much or most of what we would want to do with our wills, a typical normal will. You're not, you're not, unless you have a real problem with one of your children or one of your heirs, you're not out to cut them out. You're out to uh, simply, simply include other people, whether they're daughters, whether you want to give them all equal and take away the chelik pachara, whether you want to give some cousins some money too. Typically, unless a person is, is in a really problematic situation, he's not trying to completely eliminate any of his kids. So if you go with that, Hector, then, then again, it would seem that the prohibition has limited, uh, has limited impact on us. But once again, the Talmud seems to explicitly contradict that because the Talmud is talking about dowries, and the Talmud suggests that the dowry should be only about 10% or so. It, does, it wasn't a particularly large sum of money. I mean, it was large, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all the estate, and yet the Talmud seems to imply <coughs> that Avurech Sant uh, still applies, that the concern for redistributing Yerusha still applies. So the Gedol Achronim, the, the great Achronim, have struggled very much with trying, to, with trying to pin down exactly what the rules are. They, 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 they've tried to find combinations of these svaras and compromises, and, and, and it, it is a very difficult topic trying to figure out how strict are we, how... It, to, to a certain extent, it seems that uh, context and motivation plays a role, too. If, if the gift is meant to be a, a simple gift when you're alive, it's one thing. For them to enjoy during your life, it's one thing. If, if, the, if the motivation and the intent of the gift is to be effectively a will to, to affect the, distrib- the distribution of your assets after you're dead, that, that's more strict. But, but again, it, it, it's very hard to, it is very hard to, uh, to, to define halakha normatively what exactly do, are the parameters of this rule. And the truth is, when we discuss the wills, when we discuss the, the wills that include daughters or do other things that alter the, the, the Seder Yerusha, many authorities do invoke all these arguments in combination, but individually in combination. It's not the whole estate. You're not disinheriting anybody entirely. You're, the, way, the way we structure the wills, they do take effect when the person is still alive, not, not entirely, but they take effect a moment before he dies, and they're structured as debt obligations, not as actual asset transfers. So, so there are actually a variety of reasons a variety of considerations that all serve to mitigate the, the prohibition, but at the end of the day, none of them are really a slam dunk, and to some extent, we are relying on, we are relying on, uh, on, on this idea that, that, that going back to Talmudic times already, 
going back even to this hint in our parsha, there is a mitzvah to give, to, to give the daughters some portion of the estate, and that, to some extent, is what justifies our wills that include the daughters. It's not actually so clear whether the, the prohibition of Avuri Santa applies to disinheriting a Bukhar. It's a, there isn't extensive discussion about it, as far as I could tell in the postkim. The, the, the minog, I believe, as you said, is that people do that, that people do take away the extra chalik of the Bukhar. Once again, I have a, uh, I have a strong interest in this question. But, uh, so I, but, but again, the minog, I think, clearly is, as you said, that we do that, and that, that seems to be accepted practice. Now, Rechaim Palaji, one of the great Turkish postkim of the 19th century, discusses a, a takana, that existed in his time in Constantinople. In, he says it goes back uh, for centuries in Constantinople. He says that they would, they would give, there was a takana in place, a binding communal edict, local communal edict, that, a venerable one that existed for centuries apparently, to give the daughters a certain percent of the, of the estate. It was not equal to the, to the sons, but they would give them, he says, 10%. They would give, instead of 50%, I guess, on a... He doesn't say how the ten. He doesn't exactly define how the ten percent was divided among multiple girls and so on, multiple women and so on. But basically, at least in the simple case of one, let's say one son and one daughter, the, the daughter wouldn't get fifty percent, but she would get ten percent of the estate, even without any will, without any special, without any special provision made for her by, by, by her father. A daughter would automatically get ten percent. That was a takana and a minuk. Why do they do this? What was the motivation? And how were they allowed to do this? What happened to Avuriak Santa? So Rechaim Palaji says this was made, it was essentially a, a, a deal with the devil, he says. Uh, I, I don't mean to imply that women were the devil. I mean, in this case, he, he says it, it was meant to address a, a societal problem, and it was a compromise. It was essentially a lesser of two evils. He says the law, there, there, were, there had been for centuries, we know this from a variety of sources going back to the medieval period, there was significant cleavage in the laws of Yerusha between the secular regimes and between the Torah. Uh, 800 years ago, I don't know if the secular regimes were more, pro- more progressive, but they were certainly different. Today, they're more progressive, they're more egalitarian. So halacha has not aligned with the laws of Yerusha for many centuries. And Rechaim Palaji says we, they were afraid, chas v'shalom, if the daughters knew they would receive more, a, a larger share of the state, or any share of the state under, under, under the, the, the law, the secular law, as opposed to halacha, even though, according to Din Torah, they were required to go to Basin and accept what Basin would, would award them, even though we've discussed many times the notion of Dina Melchusadina, the idea that Halacha sometimes incorporates and respects the provisions of secular law, Yerusha, for reasons that are beyond the scope of our talk, but Yerusha is one area where the, the voice of Halacha is virtually unanimous that we do not do that. Well, I'm not getting into the question of wills, about whether a, whether a secular will is effective in Halacha, but a person dies with no will, a person dies in test state, and the laws of the state of Maryland say, this is where the money goes. Halacha says, this is where the money goes. Virtually all posts can agree that we have to follow halacha and we do not follow the secular law, even though in most areas of Hoshim Mishpat there's some debate about that. It's more complicated. But in Yerusha, for various reasons, Yerusha is one area where the halacha is pretty emphatic that we follow Din Torah and we do not follow secular law. So, so Chaim Falaji says that the... There was a concern that since the girls knew they wouldn't get they wouldn't get a share of the state, the daughters knew they wouldn't get a share of the state. He says people would be tempted, you know, would would do the wrong thing, and would go to court uh, to get what they could get under under the law. This would be theft, he says. This would be this would violate the prohibition of going to secular court, the terrible affair of halichal arkos, which is a chil Hashem. 
which has a tinge of Avodah even to it, he says. You're giving honor to the Avodah he says. So this, this would be a terrible situation, he says. If, if, they would know, if they would know they would do so much better under Turkish law, they would abandon Bastin and Dintura and go to court. Therefore, we give the, the Saralazazel, so to speak, therefore we, we give them a, a share of the estate. You say, here, take it, Alpidin, we'll, we'll grant it to you, Alpidin, so, you, so you'll have, they might, I don't know how much they got under Turkish law, if they would still get another 40%, I don't know if they, that would be enough, but still, giving them something, a substantial portion of the estate, hopefully that would be enough to, uh, to and they know they're getting a, a good amount of money, so they, said they, w- they, wouldn't, they wouldn't feel, they, they wouldn't feel uh, necessary, they wouldn't feel necessary to, to sue in court and take the money Shiloh could do. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yes. Now, there is one complication. That, yes, Halacha would say if, uh, if there are assets and the, the court gives them to one set of Yarshim and they are not the Yarshim according to Torah, or they get more than the Yarshim that Yushav Torah gives them, then the, the Torah, in Basin, they would be, they, if, they, if they ask a, a Halacha question, they would be forced to return it to the, the, the owners according to Torah law. There is one complication, one major complication. This goes back hundreds of years also to the early Akronim, very often, especially if you're dealing with real property or with anything that has to be registered and has to pass through legal channels, the, you, need, you need them to cooperate. You need them to, certainly if it's real estate, you need them to sign paperwork, you need them to, to, to transfer the property. Many postcom have said that even if we don't let the, let's say the daughters take the money that isn't theirs, al in Torah, we also don't require them to provide any cooperation in terms of signing papers and so on to let the money go to the, to the mail heirs. So they're in a kind of stalemate, they're in a deadlock, the, the, the daughters cannot take it because it's not theirs, Alpid and Torah. The sons can't take it because practically they, they need the, they need the, the sign-offs of the, of the women, and they don't have to provide that. So the halacha recognizes that the daughters do have the right to say, even though, even though we're following Torah law, we're not going to take property that doesn't belong to us, but if you, if you need our signatures, we have the right to demand compensation for that, and they have the right to ask for a, for a settlement for a significant amount of money for their cooperation. So this is, this is uh, the strong consensus on this. So in practice, Certainly, with regard to, to real property or bank accounts and stuff like that, practically, I guess in, in most most in first world countries today, that's where most of a person's money would be, either in securities or four hundred one ks or real estate. So practically, the daughters would get a fair amount of money anyway. In in a case where his money was under his mattress in cash or bullion, then yes, they would have to shoot, they would have to give it to them. Yeah, so in practice, I don't know how it would work. I, I just meant if, if he has gold, gold under, if he has cash under his mattress, so, so theoretically the, the son could take the daughter to a dentara and, and Basin would say, give him that bag of cash. And uh, it, it, if, if the son then gets in trouble for taxes and needs her to sign off, then yes, then she could say, pay me for that signature. Yeah, so I, I don't know the details of all the laws, but th- that's how it works according to dentara. And then beyond all this, there is the Takana in Constantinople and other cities, other, other records we have, that, that, that individual communities made takanos that automatically granted the daughters a certain share of the estate. The reason of Chaim Pelagic gives was to prevent a uh, lesser of two evils, to prevent a worse situation where they would go to court, take the money Shalokadin, and violate Gezel and the prohibition of going to court. In the mid-20th century, there was a great controversy. Rav Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Herzog, <coughs> one of the greatest uh, Gaonim in Eretz Yisrael in the 20th century, first chief rabbi, Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, he had a lifelong ambition, a lifelong project to attempt to provide a, a, work, a workable system whereby the state of Israel could be governed in accordance with halacha. 
he recognized, he knew he was well-educated, and, and he knew that modern law, modern society had different views on lots of things, including the laws of Yerusha. But, he, but he, also, he also believed passionately that a Jewish state should be run by halacha. And he was optimistic in that there could be, he hoped, and he, he hoped there could be some way of reconciling the two. And he had a project, essentially, to harmonize as much as possible the law with halacha, to find ways where, where we, could, uh, we could find a, a working relationship between the law and halacha. So when he came to Yerusha, that was one of his big issues. When, we mentioned previously his discussion of chalitza, where trying to ban chalitza might have been part of that, uh, that general program, but when, when he came to Yerusha, he was faced with this dilemma that Western society had views that were very different from halacha in terms of women inheriting in particular. And Rafferzak knew that halacha did not recognize Din Malchusadina and so on. He, he knew that the halacha said had a very different attitude toward, the, toward Yerusha. So his proposal was, to, to square that circle, was he, he did extensive research, he produced the Takana of Constantinople and other Takanas that we find communities throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, had instituted their own rules for, for Ksuva, for Yerusha, regulating many aspects of, of marriage and inheritance. Therefore, he said, we in Israel, we have the right to make Takanas too. Even if it's true, if a secular government made laws, we would say, Din Malchusadim doesn't apply, and we, and we Jews follow Yerusha. But if a Jewish community, a large Jewish community, if a Jewish nation makes takanas, they have the right to make their own takanas, and they can make a takana that Yerusha shall be updated to follow different rules and that the women shall inherit, even though in Torah law they do not. Rav Herzog's proposals did not meet with much acceptance. I, I, don't, I don't know the whole... The whole I, I'm, I'm not expert in the details of the story, but to the, to, to the extent that, I, that I've read about it, it seems that a lot of people were more pessimistic than he was. They felt that it might, even if we agree in principle, it might be worth making some concessions to, the, to modernity, to, to Western law, if we felt that would get reciprocal recognition of halacha as a guiding, uh, as, a guiding as, as, as the basis for Israeli law. They felt it wasn't going to happen. The, they, they weren't going to be satisfied with making a takana here, a takana there, and Regardless, they, 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 they was, the schism was too wide between halacha and, and the law to be bridged by, a, by an occasional concession. Therefore, you know, there was no point in making concessions. There was no, uh, we, weren't, we, weren't, we weren't really going to get anywhere with this, and therefore the, the, we were asking for a major takanas. And again, a takana, even if it's technically valid, you run to the question that, is it in the spirit of the Torah's laws of Yerusha? Obviously not. And then you run to the question of, Avurech Santa, that, that, that the, Torah, the Torah, besides expecting you to follow the halacha, the Torah has a specific rule. You aren't supposed to find legal mechanisms to redistribute property in ways other than the laws of Yerushim. Even though, again, when it comes to women, there has been this, 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 uh, this idea for, for years that communities did do it for the reasons of, uh, reasons of increasing the women's marriageability and increasing shalom bias, but, but it was clear that a wholesale program like this to just rewrite the laws of Yerusha to give women equally to, to, to men, Poskin felt was not, was, was stretching the halacha too far. It, we have a letter, for example, from the Yaskil Avdi, Rav Avadi who was not happy at all with Rav Herzog's proposal. He said, yes, it's true. Rav Herzog, he says, you, you found certain communities that had takanas that, that allowed for, that altered the laws of Yerusha, but those were, those were narrower, those were targeted, and, and, and those were addressing specific concerns. He says in Morocco, among the Sephardim, there, there was a takana that gave the women a certain share in the, in the state. He says, but again, that was more in, within the spirit of the Talmudic rule that we want to enhance their marriageability. It was done with single women, he says. It was done 
He says it was done for single women. To a, it wasn't meant to alter the laws of Yerusha. It was meant to give them additional assets to enhance their marriage ability. He says that's clearly not your motivation. That that's not what you're doing here. That you're doing something which is much broader and much, uh, much cutting much more deeply into the laws of Yerusha. So he says that's uh, that, again that, that that's stretching this, this this original this original dispensation for enhancing marriageability. You're stretching that beyond recognition. He says to to make a takana universally that every woman should inherit equally to every man. He says that's not that's something that's unheard of. That's it's uh, a radical extension of this law, stretching it beyond the breaking point, and you can't do that. Now, on the other, and that I think is somewhat representative of the general rabbinic attitude toward Herzog's proposals. Herzog himself was, was collegial, I think, and, and didn't try to force it. He, he felt it was legitimate, but he, 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 he listened to the opinions of others. And I, 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 my understanding is that, that, that when he failed to get significant rabbinic support, he, 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 he backed off. Rav Zalman Nechemi Goldberg, though, in our generation, is one of the, he's one of the leading experts on Chosh Mishpan and Eben Ezer, the laws of Jewish civil law and the laws of marriage and family. He strongly recommends that we do reintroduce some form of the Shtar Chatzi Zacher. He's not proposing a takana necessarily, but, he's, but he does strongly recommend, kind of like with prenups, we'll, we'll discuss another nexus in this and prenups in a moment, but he, but he strongly recommends the reintroduction of the Shtar Chatzizachar. We don't know exactly when they stop being done. Again, today we don't really do dowries at all, so the Shtar Chatzizachar, which was initially done as part of the financial pre-marriage settlements, it fell into, uh, it fell into disuse. In ready the 19th century, we have Postkim saying that it wasn't done much anymore. But Rav Zalman Nechemia is strongly in favor of, of reintroducing it. He notes, as we said earlier, he notes that on, on the specific narrow question of whether the, ra- the, whether the rationale of enhancing marriageability is, still, is still, uh, it's still in place as yes it is, because even, we said earlier, that even if the money is given later, it still enhances her marriageability initially, because he expects it and he anticipates it. Beyond that, he says, he echoes of Chaim Palaji, the need to do this, the, the desirability of doing this, he says, is great because of this concern, that we, we want very much that women should be willing to participate in the halakhic process, to go to Bastin. If they don't go to Bastin, he says, we have these dual evils. We have, A, the, the, any money she takes using the secular court system, even in Israel, any, any money she takes is gezel. And B, that the, B, going to court itself is a tremendous, uh, tremendous avera. Most posts can have said that these things apply even in Israel. So therefore, he says, we, we, we really want to avoid this uh, terrible situation. So again, echoing Rav Chaim Palaji, he says that it would be a very good idea to reintroduce the Shtar Chatzit Zachar as, uh, again, to give the women some, some share of the, of the estate. So he's advocating only giving the daughters half of what it says? So as, regarding the question of how much should we give them, so I noted earlier that historically most of the evidence that we have, it's interesting, the Shtar Chatzit Zachar, it isn't mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch, it, it isn't something that, we, that our primary records come from explicit statements, this is what we do or should do, it comes, it comes really from historic records. It comes, the Chuvas mentioned, when they discussed it, the, 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 the breakup of a marriage, they say, and there was a star that granted so-and-so. They discuss it as just matter-of-fact. They're, they're describing the, the reality as it existed that they used to execute these documents. Now, they assume it was done kadin, and they find, they find justifications for it. So we, we don't know what the right way to do it is, because Post can never really discuss that. They just record what was done in their time, and the records mostly indicate Chatzit Zachar. There are some poskim who claim that since the evidence we have only points to Chatzit Zachar, 
it really is appropriate to limit it to Chatzis Zachar. We mentioned earlier that uh, since, it is, since it is against the spirit of Yerusha, it is sort of Avuriach Santa, even though there are different Eterim we discussed earlier, the dowry mitzvah and other things, there are those who have argued that in addition you should make more of a clear distinction between the, the Torah's errors and the ones that you're giving. But Rav Zalman says, no, Rav Zalman says, all the technical justifications given for dowries, for this, for that, the fact that it's done mechaim, the fact that it's done in the form of a, of a, of the form of a gift, uh, mechaim, the fact that it's done in the form of an obligation rather than an outright transfer, all these arguments, he says, apply equally to a, what we call a shtar kulo zacher, a shtar that gives just as much as the men. Rav Zalman therefore, in his, uh, he wrote a major essay published in Truman, decade or two, a couple of decades ago, argued that it doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want. Uh, I don't know what he would say, Allah Chalamaisa, whether he would, what he would recommend, but he says there's ample basis for doing even a ample basis in the halachic, uh, halachic arguments for doing even a shtar kulo zachar, for giving the, the women as much as the men. And he argued, but he argues strongly for the, for the general idea that we should give, we should do this, we should write these shtaras to, to avoid gezel, to avoid going to our coast. Rezal position is actually very similar to another, maybe better-known position of his in the realm of the, the prenup, the prenuptial agreement signed by couples before they get married. Before you get there, can I just, so I'm curious, let's say parents write a will, like just a, you know, a, a secular will, dividing things equally. Are the children doing anything wrong by abiding by that? Uh, two questions. So broadly speaking, there's two questions here. The first question is, is a ordinary secular will binding according to halacha. I mentioned earlier that the, the laws of inheritance per se are not according to most poskim. A, a will, though, that is a contract drawn up by the father under prevailing law that is not structured with all the halachic niceties, that is, a much, mu- that is a much more controversial question. Many poskim say that such a will is binding, that, that, that errors do have to follow. And even if it's contested, Basin would enforce it. So some, some, some poskim, somebody didn't, would enforce such a will for sure. Even according to the poskim that it is not, that it is not binding, if the, if the children choose to abide by it, I don't think anybody would say they're doing anything wrong. If they, if they choose to respect their father's wishes or to preserve uh, family, uh, you know, the fa- family ties, I don't think anybody would say there's anything wrong with that. So, so Rezal Nechemi Goldberg's position with prenups is, is well known. He is the leading and most important advocate of writing a prenup, the, the kind that's used in modern Orthodox circles in, the, in, in America. Rabbi Willig is the most uh, best-known proponent of it. He, he prepared it in, in, uh, in, t- in, in tandem with Rav Zalman Nechemia. And the, the prenups, it, it, and Rav Zalman Nechemia's rationale for it is, is a very similar idea to what Rav Zalman Nechemia says here with regard to the Shtar Chatzizachar. He says, Again, under Torah law, a woman gets very little in the event of divorce. She gets her ksuva, she gets... But, but, but especially in the case where there are significant assets, it's very little. So practically, a woman has... Realistically, a woman has a great temptation to go to court, where she's likely to get a lot more under frameworks such as equitable distribution, community property, and so on. A woman would end up with a lot more. And again, just like with, with wills, posts can debate whether halacha would recognize that or not. There are some postkin who might say yes, many postkin would say no, many postkin would say that if the couple is having a dispute, they have to go to Basin and they have to abide by what a Basin would rule, and a Basin very well might not rule in accordance with the frameworks of community property and so on. So Rav Zalman is very concerned, again, that providing people with such a, such a temptation, such an incentive, even though it's wrong according to Allah, but providing people with such a uh, almost irresistible motivation to go to court and take money shalokadin, which would be terrible things according to Halacha, is a terrible problem. 
Therefore, if Zalman Nechemia says, once again, it is highly recommended for the husband to write a, a, a prenuptial settlement with his wife that grants her money similar to what she would get, at least you know, within, an order of, you know, within the same uh, commensurate to what she would get in a court, this way she will have much less incentive to actually go to court if she knows that she has an agreement that will be enforceable in a basin that will grant her, that will grant her something in, in the same order, something similar to what she would get in, in, in court. So again, in both cases, he acknowledges the reality that, that, that if, if we allow too much cleavage to remain between what halacha awards a woman and what the court would award her, in an ideal world she'll respect Basin, but in the real world we know many people will not. Therefore, he says it's a concession that's worth making that we should, we should encourage the use of these documents that will grant the woman much more, much more than she would get in coin to halacha. We grant her something much more in line with what the modern court would give her. This way, when she takes it in Basin Alpidin, at least she's, she's going to Basin, she's not going to court, she's, she, she's not committing theft. And therefore, therefore, Avzalman Nechemia is strongly in favor, both in the case of the prenup, as well as in, as well as in the case of the will, the Shadar Chatzizachar, in favor of doing this. And this itself is a major public policy con- concern for him, that we avoid Gezel and we avoid the Isra of our coast. One, one last point we should mention is that contemporary posts can point out one other strong reason for writing a, a Shadar Chatzizachar, is that, again, this is not something you find in the early poskim, but it's something that uh, as the expression goes, that can, Yerusha arguments can cause tremendous machlokas uh, in families, tremendous dissension. And therefore, to avoid that, that itself is a strong reason to give them something in line with what they expect, in line with what society or the culture might consider reasonable, because if you don't, it, it can destroy a family. The question is, is, is this really a halachic judgment? Is it, would this justify it in and of itself? Would you still have to rely on the other technical arguments about dairies and so on? Less clear, but certainly if there is basis in halacha to do it, this, this certainly would be one more reason to, uh, one more reason to, you know, to, to, lean, toward writing, to lean toward writing such a will. The, the one thing I'm not so clear about, as I said, is the, 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 I don't think there's a clear consensus on whether the women should be given, again, I have my, I have my personal interest, but the... But the, I, don't, I don't think the consensus is quite so clear on how much the women should be given. The, the common practice, I think, is to give them equally to the men. There are poskim, particularly in Eretz Yisrael, who recommend less, who recommend that we, we do preserve the Torah's laws of Yerusha to a significant extent. But again, I think the minigas, like Rizal Menachemia says, the minigas, it doesn't really matter, and that we do give them whatever, whatever you think is appropriate based on societal and cultural considerations. <laughs>